Welcome back to another season of A Water for Fighting. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers, and I'm so grateful to be back with you again. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of my loyal sponsors, and of course, you the listener. In fact, this episode of Water for Fighting is brought to you by my friends at Resource Environmental Solutions. Res is the nation's leader in nature-based ecosystem restoration, helping to restore Florida's natural resources with water quality and stormwater solutions that offer communities guaranteed performance and outcomes. Check them out at www.res.us. All right, to start the season off, I did two things that are completely out of the ordinary for me in this show. I recorded this in front of a live studio audience, so to speak, and I interviewed two guests at once. The idea for the change of pace is thanks to Brian Newman, the Chief Judge of Florida's Division of Administrative Hearings. He, along with his fellow judges, Francine Folks, Bruce Culpepper, and Bill Horgan, made my time at the National Association of Administrative Law Justices National Conference an experience to remember. And I thank them for listening and for supporting the mission of this show. Of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank my esteemed guests, Elizabeth Fernandez and Doug Manson. They were great sports, and I think you'll find their insights very worthwhile. All right, let's get to the live recording. So welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. And as they say in Monty Python, now for something completely different. I'm recording in front of a live studio audience of administrative law judges at their national conference here in Tampa, and I'm honored to be with them today. I'm also here with two of the most prominent water law practitioners in the state of Florida. First is Elizabeth Fernandez and Doug Manson. Elizabeth is the Deputy General Counsel at the Southwest Florida Water Management District. We'll be calling it Swift Mud from now on. Elizabeth represents the district in cases before the Division of Administrative Hearings here in Florida, as well as federal courts. Before joining the Water Management District, she worked extensively in the private sector representing clients in complex business litigation. She holds a bachelor's degree in communications from the University of South Florida, go Bulls, here in Tampa, and earned her JD at Florida State University, also go Knowles. Doug is president and shareholder at the Manson Bulbus Donaldson Tanner Law Firm. He has over 30 years experience practicing water law in the state of Florida, and has conducted the Florida Bar Water Law Seminar, and has presented for and with a long list of organizations and governments throughout the state. He's also a double graduate from Florida State University, earning his bachelor's and JD there. And so if you listen to my podcast before, you'll know that it's very personality focused. I'm as interested in environmental professionals' motivations as I am about what they know. So let's get to know these two a little bit better. Elizabeth, let's start with you. Where are you from and how did you get to Swift Mud? Well, I am Florida born and raised, originally from the Jacksonville area, but I've got deep Tampa roots and I've been in Tampa for since 2003 or four or something like that. I'm actually quite proud of my Tampa roots. My great-grandfather, when he moved from Spain, when he was 19, started out in Tampa as a cigar roller. And we don't call it the cigar city down here for nothing. So I'm actually pretty proud of those Tampa roots. As for me, I grew up in and on the water. So both of my parents are from the Jacksonville area. They grew up on the St. John's River. Water sports were huge in my upbringing. Like most of my early childhood was being dragged behind a boat on water skis or on wakeboards or on boogie boards or whatever, even just throwing a mask and a snorkel on and just seeing what's down there. 
So I've always been really passionate about water and it's always been huge in my life. And then I went to law school and I did business litigation for a little while and eventually realized that I needed to find something in my law career that I was really passionate about and basically beat down SwiftMud's door until they let me come practice law for them. And that's how I ended up at the district. One question just on that history, because this is something, and typically it's an hour podcast, somewhere around there, and I'll talk for the first half of it just about the person's grandparents, great-grandparents, how they got here, the whole, the whole nine yards. So we can't go from cigar roller to wakeboarding. We've got to go <laughs> cigar roller. How do you get the family from Tampa to Jacksonville at that point? So that's funny you mentioned it that way, because he, my great-grandfather, when he left Tampa, moved to Jacksonville and opened a sporting goods store. So it was one of the first sporting goods stores in the Jacksonville area. It was downtown. It was like a staple of Jacksonville for a really long time. And it was everything, fishing, canoeing, skeet shooting, all of the the Florida greats. And my mother also has quite a sporting history. So her grandfather was a coach at Auburn. So we've always been a very outdoorsy family. And I think it's just hereditary at that point. (laughs) Yeah, that explains the access to all the water sports equipment for sure. So before you get to college, so you go to you go to school for communications, right? And then obviously law. When you're in high school, when you're a kid, was science that sort of the water resources, the environment? Was that of interest to you back then as well? I really excelled at science in high school. College science is a little bit more difficult. (laughs) So I actually started out as a a chemistry major because I really loved the sciences all the way through. And I I have always been interested in biology. I, like every Florida kid, wanted to grow up scuba diving and playing with dolphins and all of that fun stuff. But while I was in college, the more communications-related classes I took, the more I just fell in love with communications and the written word and, and using language to, to communicate concepts and ideas and things that are difficult to communicate, like science and, and the law. And let's talk about, you know, you're, now you're back, you've knocked down the doors and Brian let you in and <laughs> you're at the district now. Talk a little bit about the district itself, because this is West Central Florida. You're both West Central Florida people. I was born and raised down here, or grew up in Sefner, which is east of here. Talk about the district itself, the area for people that don't know Swiftmont very well. So the Southwest Florida Water Management District is just one of five water management districts. So what I think is particularly interesting about that piece of information is that we are districted out throughout the state of Florida, not based on regular county or municipality boundaries. Instead, our district boundaries are drawn out by important geological or hydrogeological features throughout the state of Florida. So the reason that sort of we're we're portioned out that way is because things can be significantly different throughout the Everglades versus how things look up in the Panhandle versus how things look in the St. Johns River and all of the tributaries that feed into that. So we are the water management district that covers the southwest area. So we're all or part of 16 counties, depending on where that county boundary sort of lines up with whatever the important watersheds are in that area. And importantly, we also cover the the Tampa Bay area and the Charlotte Harbor area, which are excellent resources as, as far as Florida resources for recreation, fisheries, all those important 
Florida things. All right, now we're off to you, Doug. And you and I have known each other for a while. And so it's, yeah. And so this, the fun part for me is, in doing the podcast, is even people that I've known for a while, people that I respect and care about, it comes down to sometimes there are things that in their lives, things in their histories that you don't know a lot about. And so that's, that's one of the things I like about this. So tell me a little about yourself. Where are you from? Were your parents from Florida? No, no, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant, but I was actually born in Hollywood, Florida. So I tell people Hollywood and they think California. No, Hollywood, Florida. And then we grew up on the, on the Space Coast in part. So my family lived in Indian Harbor Beach. And so the beach was less than a half a mile away. Unfortunately, I had a mother who was very afraid her children were going to drown. So most of my times to the beach were sneaking out with my older brother. And many times we came close to drowning. But we really enjoyed, we really enjoyed Indian Harbor Beach. We could never surf because you know, surfboards were hard to, hard to hide. And then in 1972, my, both my pro parents worked for the space program. And when the Apollo space program shut down in 72, eventually in that year, both of them became laid off. And then we moved to the Tampa Bay area. So I moved to Dunedin, which is where I went to elementary school sixth grade and then junior high and then high school in 1972. So I finished up over there. So I think I'm a Tampa Bay resident at this point. So it's because I've been here a little longer than, than you have, but obviously I'm a little older. So we grew up in Tampa Bay back when, you know, Pinellas County still had a lot of people. It's hard to believe how many more have managed to squeeze in over that time period and how much it's changed. And I remember both my wife and I, and my wife's my high school sweetheart, when we left to go to college at Florida State, we said, we'll never come back to Tampa or Clearwater because at that point in time, it was not a community that young people would want to come to. And now you look, we've got a very big urban area in both St. Pete and Tampa that draws in a lot of young people to it. That was unheard of. You know, there were still green benches in St. Pete when I went off to college. So that's how we have our heritage here. My mother was from Georgia. My father's from Chicago. Every time the movie Gone with the Wind would play, my mother would call my father a damn Yankee for at least a week, you know? So it was always a rivalry within the house. How did, how did they get to Florida, your parents? Did they meet in college or something like that? My, my father worked with the Northern Illinois Gas Company when he was in, working then out in the field. And after one year of working in the snow out in the field, he got on a train and came to Miami in 1958. So and told my mom to move down three months later. Well, let's get to, I want to talk a little bit about Dunedin and people that listen to my podcast know that my grandfather, when he retired from the Navy, he became a state park ranger. And one of those places that he ended up, which I love going the most, was Caldeci Island. Was that a place that, that had an impact on you when you were a kid? You spent a lot of time there, Honeymoon Island, places like that? <laughs> Spent a lot of time on Honeymoon Island, and we would attempt to swim across to Caladesi Island. to turn back a couple times because the amount of sharks that we would see <laughs> on our way across. But uh, yes, we did spend a lot of time. And I spent a lot of time in, in the beach. You know, I started off in Indian Harbor Beach, always loving the water. And then when we came over here, I would ride my bicycle to uh, Clearwater Beach or to Honeymoon Island, depending on who was going with me. Then why did you become an attorney? And then was it always water for you? I mean, as long as I've known you, it's been water. Yeah. But how did you start? Well, definitely a water lawyer. But my start was at 12 years old, I determined I wanted to be a lawyer from watching Perry Mason. So, and you know what most appealed to me was the fact that, one, he got to argue. And I've always loved to argue. As my wife says, Doug found a profession that paid him to do what he loves. So then the other part was he would finish a case. This was the lie part of it. And then he would sit around with, right, Paul Drake, 
and Della, and they would have a drink like they didn't have any other work to do, right? So, so they were just waiting for the next case to come in. So I thought, how nice, a job where you finish one case, then you get a little break, and then you start the next case. Well, all of you in the room know that was a complete lie. That's not the way it works. But that's what started me interested in law, and so I kind of made up my mind at 12 I was going to be a lawyer. And then I always had an interest in economics. So I actually was an economics major undergraduate, Started to go to graduate school and ran into multi-regressional analysis, and that was the stopping point. Maybe like chemistry was for you at college. It was imagine a line that goes on this wall, that wall, and then in the middle of it from the floor springing out as a third line. We're going to describe that one. I think it was in class three days before I dropped and said, let's just go straight to law school. So. Yeah, I have that problem when I, I talk to my wife. She does that kind of thing for a living, and she starts to talk, and I'm like, I don't even, I don't even know what you're saying, but that's, <laughs> that's a lot of fun. But uh, anyway, that aside, let's get on to the meat of the conversation and talk a little bit about water law in Florida and beyond. I stole the title of my podcast from an old Mark Twain quip, Whiskey's for Drinking, Water's for Fighting. And I think most people in the room will know that most conflict, if not nearly all of them, are born really of water scarcity. And sometimes that's real, and sometimes that's imagined, and sometimes that imagination is a matter of opinion and, and, and so forth. But the different regions of the country handle that fighting part pretty differently. And so I want to talk a little bit about Eastern versus Western water law first, and then how Florida fits into that spectrum philosophically. Elizabeth... Why don't you cover the main differences between Eastern and Western water law, and then we'll let Doug tackle how we do it in Florida and what makes that so weird and special. So there's the, the sort of newspaper headline version of the difference between Eastern and Western water law, and then I think in much the same way that a scientific journal has trouble being condensed to the headlines, I think the difference between the Eastern riparian rights legal regime and the Western prior appropriation regime have trouble being broken down into like the newspaper headline versions of those. In reality, there are kind of a lot of subtleties that go into, into both of them. So broad strokes, the difference in prior appropriations between that and, and the riparian rights is a prior appropriations regime is basically you get a beneficial use and then you keep that beneficial use as long as you keep it going and your right basically comes first in time first in right so as long as you keep it going and you're using it for the beneficial use it's supposed to be so if it's a drinking water beneficial use you keep using it as drinking water you get to hang on to that and all of the subsequent appropriations for water that come in after that are subordinate to your prior appropriation so as water becomes more scarce or as water becomes different in quality or the, the, the uses that you have for it, those subordinate rights sort of disappear and, and give way to the prior in time rights. And then the riparian regime is really just, this is your property, it abuts a certain amount of water, that's your, that's your water. And so that's, that is very broad strokes how, this, how those regimes work. But in reality, and I think it's pretty... I mean, any legal philosophy sort of has an underpinning in sort of a, a do no harm. You cannot use your rights to the injury of someone else. And a reasonableness. So you have a right, but it's subject to a certain amount of reasonableness. So the more I think water becomes scarce in terms of like, and I don't mean scarce, you know, there, there's always going to be a cost to access water, like clean, cleaner water or desalination. 
But when it comes to finding access to cheap, clean, fresh water, those legal regimes, I think, sort of come down and, and look a little bit more similar. So like our Florida versus Georgia case that we had here, what the courts are really looking at is who has the injury and who can prove that someone else caused that injury. And so I think when water law is sort of pushed into that almost tort-like framework, it becomes really, really difficult for the injured party. Um, it's, it's a really high burden in a case like that. So although there are differences in those regimes, East versus West, at the end of the day, in the right conditions, they do kind of look a lot more similar when, when water isn't around and as prevalent as it has been in the past. Doug, talk a little bit about that, some of those, the penumbras that give us Florida water law. So first I have to mention that you said a trigger word uh -oh. uh, for him when you I talked about the Florida Georgia case. I didn't case. want to I'm take very, that bait. I'm very impressed that you maintained <laughs> to control yourself. Yeah. So, so you're right. I mean, the, the issue is in, in Florida, there was an examination that, and you did a great job of summarizing, and I was interested in how you were going to do that, a very tough topic because you are right. And it depends on where out west you are too on how it's dealt with. So that was a great explanation of it. In Florida, we had uh, Dean Maloney, who's, I would say, like, what would we say, the, the grandfather or the originator, the creator of what we now use as the water management districts. He looked and examined water law in both the eastern and western law and the common law in Florida. And this started a process starting in like 1957 all the way up to 1972 when the model water code came out. And, and the issue was how do we combine these because you have two predominantly different ways of looking at water. You know, the riverine aspect of water, which you'd seen as like the riparian issues, then you had groundwater. And so what he did is he took both sets of water law and combined them into what is a three-pronged test in the model water code, which is in our statutes in Florida. Is the use reasonable and beneficial? Does it impact prior appropriation part? Does it impact a legal existing user? And is it in the public interest? Now, what was interesting about that is that when he looked at those uses, it, it, those three prongs incorporated all of water law, eastern and western, and combined them together in Florida in a unique way. And then, of course, there's a much more to the model water code, most of which got adopted into the statutes. But the bottom line of it was, is it reasonable beneficial? And that goes to the efficiency and the need. So let's say you're doing flooding irrigation for rice in southwest Florida here. We, uh, that's probably not going to meet the reasonable beneficial test because this is not a good area to be doing that, you know, to be able to actually raise water six or eight inches above surface with an evaporation rate of about 50 inches a year. And this wouldn't be considered an efficient use. Other crops, and they're not usually saying a crop type is eliminated, but other crops are more beneficially used. How do you irrigate them? You know, is, a, is it open field irrigation like it used to be? Are you, are you using drip irrigation, which is much more efficient and was created by the Israelis for us? And are you using like micro drip for like your citrus? So there's a hole wrapped in that is an efficiency of use, which is, is pretty and amazing. In addition, there's like a duration to the permits. That's the other thing I'd say it used to be Western law was all about owning the water. So you owned it forever. Some of that doctrine is, especially in California and Texas, is really diminishing and they're having more permitting use. But the idea of creating a duration that would be long enough for you to get your investment back so that if you were building a water plant or a citrus grove, your permit would be long enough that you would see that through, either a, a initially conceived like a 20 or 30 year permit was talked about in those materials. And then the other issue was, was talked about a safe yield. 
In other words, how much can the aquifer or the river tolerate being withdrawn from it and yet still preserve the environmental features? What would prevent significant harm to the water resource by over withdrawals? And so those things were all combined in Florida and Elizabeth did a great job of describing the five districts in the state of Florida. And that's very unique, which is also unique is a constitutional amendment when we created the five districts that allows for ad valorem taxes by each one of the water management districts. And that's fundamentally important because without money, you can't do anything, right? And so the districts do get state funding as well, some more than others, but the ad valorem tax for South Florida, St. John's, and, and Southwest is the main driver of their operations. And they do many things beyond what you're hearing me talk about, which is water use permitting. They also do things like water structures uh, in the Everglades, in that area you've heard all about them, but also Southwest and St. John's do the same things to prevent flooding and to be able to make sure that water doesn't adversely impact people and to preserve those waters where they're necessary for the environment. So we've come up with a, I think, the bottled water code as adopted in Florida is the best, and I've been all over the country to hear what other water schemes are out there because when you hear something outside of the box, it helps you implement and do things here. So I've been to a lot of water conferences, and I think Florida has got the best way to manage water with the five districts that receive ad valorem taxes, with the local governing boards that determine where and how things should be done, but with a uniform statute about, okay, has to be a reasonable and beneficial use. Can't impact a legal existing user, and it must be in the public interest. So I hope it didn't go on too long there. All right. Let's take a minute to talk about my friends at Resource Environmental Solutions. Our state presents unique challenges with its diverse ecosystems, landscapes, and the many demands on its natural resources. That's why RES uses an innovative nature-based approach and creative solutions to help municipalities, agencies, and local water resource groups navigate the ever-changing landscape of environmental regulations in Florida and throughout the country. RES actively restores habitats, hydrological regimes, and ecosystem functions across Florida, from the Panhandle to the Heartland to the Florida Keys and everywhere in between. They focus on restoring floodplains and wetlands and improving water quality, which benefits a wide array of species that call Florida home. With an unwavering commitment to Florida's unique ecological communities, RES upholds long-term stewardship practices, guaranteeing sustainable outcomes that endure. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida's communities and the environmental challenges they face by visiting www.res.us. All right, back to the conversation. Let me ask you to expand on something because we talked about model water code. When I started many years ago in the governor's office, I was handed the model water code in chapter 373 of Florida statute and said, you're going to commit these to near memory and then get on with your, get on with your work. I said, great, that'll be a lot of fun. When did the, dist the districts have do water quantity? That seems to be, in many cases these days, a huge part of it, except for South Florida, which does a lot of flood protection. They have four areas of responsibility in law, and two of those include water quality and natural systems. When did the idea of those come into play there? Did it have something to do with the, say, the scarcity in, you know, in the 70s going into the 80s, where you had impacts to natural systems like wetlands? Well, yes, I mean, you're right. I mean, first of all, where did the idea of regulating water use come from, water withdrawals from the ground? And we'd like to think it was probably 1957, right here in Hillsborough County, when the city of St. Petersburg put a well field in Hillsborough County and started pulling their water, quote, Hillsborough County's water, down to St. Pete. And that began a water war that's 
was ongoing for 65 years until Tampa Bay water was formulated. And that's a long story, and, and there's whole books written about that, so I, I won't go into it too, too deeply. But that's to say, that's when the scarcity and the disputes began and where the need for legislation began. And of course, the 1972, 373, and 403 statutes were not the first attempt at that. They did things in the 60s, and none of it seemed to work. So when we came into the 70s, and we have that scarcity, and we saw development coming in, you saw impacts to wetlands, you saw whole areas that, like anybody who's been to Cape Coral, where they just came in and they, they basically dredged and filled you know, whole portions of the estuary, Charlotte County. It's, you know, it's a standard dredge and fill. My father worked for general development at that time, by the way, so thanks, Dad. But uh, <laughs> the idea was something has to be done because we're losing the pristine nature and the draw for people to come to Florida, which is the environment, which is the pristine waters, the, the beaches, the estuaries, fishing, recreating in the rivers and streams. And so then they did start the regulation at that time, management and storage of surface waters. We looked at water quality, we looked at impacts to wetlands, and that all went into effect in about 1978. I may have some of the dates off, but the, the water management, management storage of surface water is now called environmental resource permitting, didn't really come into effect in about 1984. That's when the major protection of wetlands began. But prior to that, we were looking at stormwater storage, not water quality. So that's like a key mark date. If something happened prior to October of, uh, 1984, then it could be grandfathered in, a wetland impact, things like that. But post then, it should have had some type of permitting. And over the years, I'll say the permitting has gotten much more, how do you put it, thorough, I guess would be a, a good word, and, you know, and protective. And initially, there, you know, we didn't know a lot. And the science has really developed. I'd say in my career, I've seen, we used to have a lot of cases about issues, like science issues, water quality issues, model, water modeling. You don't see it much in the last 10 or 15 years because much of that has become so settled. The districts have come by like district-wide groundwater models. So instead of your own model that you have to produce, you rely on what they've produced or you augment it or, or add to it a little bit. You don't have to create it from scratch. So there's not that much dispute. But the amount of environmental protection has vastly increased. Yeah, and let's let's drill in a little bit on some of on some of those themes because I want to talk about a place we're all from West Central Florida or here in West Central Florida. That's where you two call home. That's where you do your work largely. I know that Doug, you do some work in other places as well. But the state's been the epicenter of the competition for drinking water. Doug, I, I abbreviated him, you know, into into that box. We could probably do four shows just on just on that. But I'd like you both to focus on a region of the state in your district, Elizabeth, the Southern Water Use Caution Area, and I'll call it. I think we'll call it Swaka from from this point on. Your agency enforces all those the thorough rules as uh, as Doug describes them in that area and around your 16 county area. Touch on some of those givens now in terms of you know, how you handle that, per, that permitting. Mm -hmm. So the Southern Water Use Caution Area, SWACA, to make things easier, it, it is, we do regulate that area in a different manner than we do the rest of our district. And the reason that we do that is because SWACA is in what we call, is under what we call a recovery strategy. So our legislature, very forward thinking, has required us as the water management districts to implement recovery strategies if the data that we collect about an area indicates that the resources in that area are currently in peril. Or, also being forward thinking, we use prevention strategies if the data that we collect about an area shows that somewhere down the line, I think it's 15, 25 years, something like that, Doug could correct me on that, <laughs> 20 years. 
if in that time frame it shows that the resources we monitor in that area are going to become imperiled. So, so the Southern Water Use Caution Area gets its own special set of rules because it is in recovery. So essentially we, we have done the research, we did the data, we scienced all the science, made it very thorough at this point, and realized that the resources in the southern in the Swaka region are a little saltier than we would like them to be, and not quite at the levels that we would like them to be. And what I'm I'm talking about in, in those terms is the aquifer levels. So we have what we call sentinel wells. They're all throughout the southern water use caution area, and we keep an eye very closely on what the aquifer is doing in that region. The recovery strategy requires us to be basically project managers over getting water levels back to the area that we want them to be. So in addition to our, our specific rules in that area, we do a lot of other things in the area to help the aquifer recover, to help with the saltwater intrusion, and to help sort of get that area's natural resources back to the healthy levels that, that we like to see for our natural Florida resources. So in that vein, we look at an area that is in peril, and we take a sort of micro microscope to those rules and look at how they're playing out in that area. So we'll take our normal rules, we'll look at how they're playing out in that area, and then make adjustments as needed to try and get the water levels back to what we want them to be. And so in that, in that effort in the Swaka region, we implemented what we call a net benefit program, along with a couple of other rules and regulations that I'm sure Doug will get a little bit more into for that area. Um, the net benefit program is, is particularly interesting because it requires somebody who wants a, a specific amount of water, if that amount of water demonstrates that they are causing an impact, meaning a reduction in, in, in levels in the aquifer or a reduction in, in wetlands in the area or a reduction in any rivers or lakes that have what we call a minimum flow or minimum level set for them. If somebody is demonstrating that impact through all of this very advanced modeling, water modeling, then they have to show us some way that they are going to offset that impact. And that's what we call our net benefit analysis. So that's one of the particular rules that we put together in, this, in the Swaka area to try and help recover the area and its natural resources. All right, and here comes the the fun part. It's like I'm gonna pick a I'm gonna pick a fight here just a little <laughs> bit, and I'm gonna ask and I'm pushing Doug into this. But the reason isn't just to pick a fight for its own sake. The reason is we're we're going from a thing you know in terms of permitting to how one recovers it in a regulatory standpoint and some other ways, and we talk about those disagreements in order to get to rainbows and sunshine. Well, it's not true. They're still gonna sue each other sometimes. But let, we'll get to we'll get to that part in a little bit. So. Doug, you represent clients in and around the, the Swaka area and beyond. Talk a little bit about what happens when a client of yours and the Water Management District disagree, not just on those reasonable beneficial kind of categories, which is you want to argue over 24 million versus 26 because Bieber says a number about what population growth is going to be, but about even some things like the science underlining it. Like we, we talk about models and we science it up and those models have gotten a lot better over the years and more defendable, but show me the spots in there with the little weak parts and the armor that you're looking at when you're, when you're working for clients on these issues. Let's remember, they started the Southern Water Use Caution Area as the Eastern Tampa Bay Water Use Caution Area in something called the most impacted area. 
1990. So we are now 33 years later. So the district's had 33 years to work through this process, perfecting it and getting better at it. And I'll give him kudos first that we see the recovery. So I would, I'm not predicting like a crystal ball. I look at what the district's modeling showing and what the district's saying. They'll have, they'll reach recovery in the Southern Water Use Caution Area within the next year, if not two years. They may have already reached it because you know they're analyzing these sentinel wells and these other levels and these lake levels to see how much recovery we have. So the process started 33 years ago, certainly wasn't easy, but the idea is it's worked. So, but early on, because I'll talk about them, one of the things they talked about is saltwater intrusion occurs. We're a peninsula, right? We're never gonna run out of water. You know why? Because we're on top of water and water is beneath us. So you can pump hard enough and you will get the salt water if you go deep enough. And if you continue pumping all the fresh water, most of us in here know, like what? Salt water is heavier than fresh water. So the fresh water is on top of the salt water. And sometimes there's barriers for the salt water coming up, depending on the geology, but many times there's not, like in this area in Tampa Bay. So the salt water, salt water is below the fresh water as like a, think of an angle going under the state. And so what happens when you pump too much is some of that salt water along the coast started coming up. And so the idea was, well, what do we do about this? The early on, the theory was, well, this is causing environmental impacts. Well, this is down at 900 feet. Nothing lives there. This is an anaerobic environment. There is nothing about the environment at 900 feet. So our early arguments about this was, well, who's being harmed? Well, it's the people who had coastal wells who were starting to go saline. Well, that happened to be farmers. Well, who at that point was being blamed for this retreat of water by virtue of the large amount of use they had and it was agriculture. It was like the, I'll call it the tomato basket of the state of Florida was right in that area. And the early portions of this were showing a red dot, that's how they, they showed it, of water that had been pulled below sea level. So in certain times of the year when they were pumping heavily, you'd be 10, 20, 30 feet below sea level, which the idea was this was gonna create the salt water come flowing in. The science of it is somewhat different than that because there's this pressure gradients. So it's not like there's a pit and then it fills up with salt water. This water moves very slowly. So the idea of the Eastern Tampa Bay and Southern Water Use Caution Area was not actually to stop saltwater intrusion from occurring, but I would say it was to slow it down. So some of the early arguments were laden with data about, hey, you could go slower with this process. You could go faster with this process. You know, environmental saying faster. They, the farmers, of course, saying slower. What impacts are we gonna have? Here we have this entire industry in Florida growing vegetables and tomatoes, and this would be stopped if you immediately said no water. So the district rule evolved and has evolved to a point it is today. And she mentioned net benefit. What that really worked out, and when my clients were first looking at it is initially there was no net benefit analysis that allowed you to move water around. So they allowed a farmer, if you farmed to one farm and you had to rotate to another farm, you could carry your water with you as long as there wasn't a greater impact of the saltwater gradient. So many of our first arguments were about that modeling aspect. Was this a greater impact or wasn't it? Can I pump another 400 MGD, 400,000 gallons of water from this area and not impact the saltwater intrusion level? And over time, those 33 years, the rule continued to get more and more refined. The Southern Water Use Cautioning Rule. The modeling got more refined. The disputes got more, less because of the net benefit, your ability to transfer water. And then the thing we didn't mention, which I'll say was the biggest, because public supply really had to go to alternative water supplies. And the reason why it worked is in one hand, there was this regulatory hammer, if you will, of the Southern Water Use Caution Area. But on the other side, 
the district created, it's an acronym, I don't even remember the real name, something called Newsy Funding, where they collected money to pay for alternative water supplies for public supply. So the idea was they shifted people off of groundwater and funded like a Peace River, Minnesota Regional Water Supply Authority. It's a shameless plug. Yes, I represent them. And, uh, but they were able to get money from the district to fund half of the creation of a six billion gallon reservoir for fresh water. They also funded the Tampa Bay water to be able to move off of groundwater withdrawals, which are causing impacts to wetlands, and onto surface water withdrawals out of a reservoir off of the Alafaya River. So the district used two tools, big tools, and many smaller tools, mm -hmm. but two big tools. One, the regulatory hammer, the ability to be, ameliorate some of that impact by moving around your existing quantities, or even acquiring or buying somebody else's existing environmental impact and transferring it to your property. And more importantly, I think, the funding of alternative water supplies so public supply wasn't pushing agriculture or other uses out. They were seeking alternative water. So the initial fighting was all about how to implement this. And there were a number of them. I remember giving speeches in front of crowds of agricultural people about the rule. And I think I was quoted one time, I think it was, uh, to get the quote right, there was the Eastern Tampa Bay Water Use Cautionary or MIA. We had challenged the most impacted area rule. And the end of the speech was, you can put lipstick on it, you can put a dress on it, but a pig is still a pig and this rule has to go. And they quoted me in the newspaper the next day on it. But it got a lot of agriculture people involved in the case and ultimately we worked it out so that the district ended up with coming up with net benefit. They came up with the idea of alternative water supply funding on their own. And it was massively important to stop the water war in Tampa Bay because the Tampa Bay, St. Pete, Hillsborough, and gosh, at that point, Pasco County were all fighting each other over water withdrawals and what impacts they were going to have. And the district was having to reduce those withdrawals and affect public supply. And then they came forward and said, we're going to help you by funding 50% of your alternative water supply development. So you have some opinions about it then, do you? So, in, and rightfully so, I mean, it, it is ripe, you know, with the conflict that we're talking about and, you know, that goes without saying, keeps you busy, I'm sure. But I wanna get to how we went, you know, and you talked a little bit about that. I mean, I'm not gonna let you talk about Peace River, Minnesota for 20 minutes. We're gonna skip to, skip to a, different, a slightly different place, but you had the Tampa Bay water, you had Peace River, Minnesota, and you, some that you would, I would say, qualified successes, depending on which year, you know, sometimes there are some disagreements in there, but I still think it's a part of that overall shift in terms of turning these, these conflicts into something else. And one of those places that is a conflict and it expands beyond your borders even is the central Florida Water Initiative area, but more specifically, a, the portion of that that relates most to, to you, Elizabeth, and that's the, the that Polk County area. I want you, I want both of you to talk a little bit about the CFWI, and it's like we got lim, a limited amount of time, but I want to talk shortly about the regulatory structure of CFWI in, in broad strokes, and then uh, Elizabeth, I want you to talk about something that I never would have seen happen. When I worked for, for Swift Mud back in the 2005, 2007 days, Polk County and the municipalities within it did not get along mm -hmm. at all. And to, to see now that you have something called the Polk Regional Water Cooperative in response to the CFWI is a miracle in my, you know, in my mind. So if you don't mind, let's, let's do that. So CFWI is, is another water restricted area. So we call these water use caution areas is how they started with the idea this is an area where we probably have exceeded safe yield or we're about to exceed safe yield. And so what they looked at at CFWI is we had 
you can do that in each district, but what do you do about impacts across many districts? And this involves, CFWI covers the St. John's River Water Management District, South Florida Water Management District, and the Southwest Florida Water Management District. How can you manage water that's basically being regulated by all three districts and they're potentially, and at the time, we're regulating them differently? So the idea was, and CFWI was born out of a fight, it was born out of a fight between South Florida Water Management District and St. John's River Water Management District. And the then governor, Jeb Bush, sat them down and said, you're all my agencies, stop it. So they worked out an idea of how to regulate among the districts, and that's what created the CFWI, the Central Florida Water Initiative. The idea of let's come up with a common way of regulating because these aquifers were mostly connected and mostly having the same issue. They were pumping so much water, similar to Tampa Bay earlier, that they were impacting wetlands. They were basically dewatering some of the wetlands, many of the wetlands. So they were looking at that on a regional basis. It wasn't just like one guy pumping here, regionally lowering the aquifer. How do you solve that? Well, it was a statutory scheme to create an, you know, a new area that could be regulated jointly and affect all three districts agreeing to the same regulations in this designated area for water use. And that's what the CFWI is based on shortage. So again, sort of similar to what we say about the Southern Water Use Caution Area, there's regulations in there making it very difficult to withdraw more water out of the ground, encouraging them to go to, without the funding, however, going to alternative water supplies. So it makes you look more at regional water supply solutions like the Polk County Cooperative and other regional entities that could provide water in that area because they can usually be the ones that could afford most to go into alternative water supplies like brackish groundwater withdrawals using reverse osmosis to purify the water. Those things are, are expensive. They're more expensive than just pumping water out of the ground and squirting a little chlorine in it, which was traditionally what we were doing in most of Florida, in central Florida. Yeah, and, and to that point, I want you to expand on that if you don't mind, Elizabeth, is, and Swift Mud is, uh, when you're talking about alternative water supply, mm -hmm. no one does it better, no one does a wider array of those types of projects, largely out of born of necessity and, you know, and, and legal challenges in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And now moving forward, the districts all have to produce regional water supply plans. Those supply plans, you know, in them, you know, largely identify how you're going to get this this water. CFWI is no different, right? You got to, in the end, this amount that you're going to have to, you're going to have to hit versus the planning of a, of a, of a county like Polk County that's growing in leaps and bounds. Talk about how you, you get from, you know, where you are and the requirements that the district has to identifying some of those projects in which ends up becoming the Polk Regional Water Cooperative. Sure. So we, we talked a little bit about recovery strategies and, and what we're supposed to do for recovery strategies. And I understand that some people might feel like they've been particularly targeted if we implement recovery strategies, but it really is a rather holistic look at an area and the needs of the area. So it's, it's things like our regional water supply plans. We do every five years. We put all kinds of data and monitoring, and we implement that in the areas that we have particular concerns about. So we spend a long time before we implement a lot of these things, collecting the information to the best of our ability so that we really have a full and thorough analysis of what the area needs in order to start its path towards recovering its natural resources. So our, our regional water supply plans help identify things like 
if there are particular points of contention in amongst water users, what are some of the allies that we can kind of find in that area who have common interests at the end of the day and that we can get together and work on plans, large-scale plans, like alternative water supply plans, conservation purchases and, and doing restoration work to help get springs back up into their regular flows or getting wetlands back to the point that they are serving the, the ecological and, and hydrological functions that we like to see them, them provide. So those water supply plans and, and sort of going out into the community and learning about the needs of the stakeholders in that community really helps us identify the best projects and the quickest, cheapest, and hopefully most sustainable projects to, to get us to where we need to be in an area. So the water cooperatives, the water authorities, it, they have really gone a long way towards helping recover those resources. And it's sort of like a, a shift in the priorities amongst the stakeholders when they've gone from one party is deciding that it needs something that the other party doesn't, and then you sort of force them all into a room together. And instead of spending their resources fighting each other, instead of spending their resources on, on attorney's fees, and a, a really good water lawyer is going to be an expensive cost for especially small towns. So getting people into a room and getting them to share some of that and get on the same page and get unified about what an area needs is really, honestly, we've seen some excellent recovery stories in Tampa, in the Suwaka area, in Tampa Bay with our seagrass recovery. Like some of the steps that we have seen or some of the, the outcomes we've seen from those kinds of projects have really been phenomenal. Yeah, I'm trying to remember and just to get to, to escape well, Polk County for a second, because you mentioned it in terms of Tampa Bay water, the recovery in that, that kind of uh, Tampa Bay Water, North Tampa area. I, I interviewed Brian Armstrong is one of my my first interviews, and he mm -hmm. talked about that as one of those those good news stories where the recovery is is. And you you tell me how many it was seemed like several hundred recovered lakes and wetlands. Did I get that right? In the Tampa Bay area. Yes. It, yes, absolutely. It's. I mean, things just bounced back in incredible ways. It is one of our favorite success stories. Yeah, and so going from that to a, a perhaps budding success story, there's still a long way to go, right, with your the Polk Regional Water Cooperative. I want to get y'all's verdict on that that so far. What, I mean, what do you think? You're an expert, I mean, because you've been around these other kinds of right. authorities. Uh, regional Water Supply Authorities are getting a bunch of people in the room who have diverse interests, even within themselves, and getting them all to agree to pull the wagon, right? It's not easy. And there's always somebody who's the, you know, the, the leader of it. And if, if we're naming the person down at, I can't at Tampa Bay Water. At the time, it was Pinellas County, right? I mean, they, they were leading it. They didn't feel like they needed anything. They had all the water they needed. That's the difficulty of it. Polk Co-op is now at the point where they, I call it the, the tipping point of a regional water supply authority. You have people signed up paying for a water supply. They're actually developing a water supply now. Their project has been, it's funded and it's designed, and they're beginning now a, a brackish well field and the southeast well field have both been developed. So once you start supplying water and you've got customers signed up to pay for the water, you're basically past the tipping point. You are now a regional water supply authority that will continue to exist and go on. So Polk is there. They're uh, in the infant stage of it because they don't have the, all their pipes in yet. They don't have their supplies fully built. But the structure of the authority itself, both legally and financially, is sound. And I think it's there to stay. Yeah, well, would you agree with that 
synopsis on Doug's part, the, the conclusion that this is this can survive the test of time, or? I think so. It, Polk is not the first of its kind, and we've seen other successes with these kinds of organizations. So I have all the hope in the world that it continues to succeed, and certainly while within living memory, we have the, the sort of impetus in mind for why this happened and attempting to avoid that negative side of things, but also seeing as we go on the positive side of all of that and having that as sort of a, a driver as a goal for all of the all of the cooperators. I mean at the end of the day we all we all share the same environment. It's not like it's just one party's environment. So at the end of the day I, I do think that we all understand that there are common goals. All right. So now we go into the part of the podcast where I typically ask a series of questions and kind of, I call it a lightning round just because I don't have an imagination for calling it something different. And so I'm going to do this, but we need to treat it like lightning round status because I think we're, we're a little bit limited here. Let's start with you, Elizabeth. What professional accomplishment are you most proud of? Um, well, I, I got to say I'm pretty excited to be here. This is pretty amazing. Obviously. So I, I do spend some time in front of the Division of Administrative Hearings, and I, I'm proud of the work that I do there. But I think what I really enjoy doing in my office is, is sort of the, the outreach and the communications. I think if you're going to be an environmental lawyer, knowing the people you're sharing your environment with is crucial to success for natural resources in the area, for the stakeholders in the area. So getting the opportunity to do stuff like this and, and to meet with Doug regularly and, and talk about the state of the law and the environment in Florida is fantastic. And so I'm really happy to be able to do that stuff. Doug, I mean, you're kind of, you're an optimist by, by nature. I mean, you do a little bit of scrapping, but you always strike me as a, a positive influence. Are you optimistic about the future of the environment in Florida? I am. I mean, I've seen, I've seen recoveries, many of them. You know, Dunedin, we had Dunedin Sound there, very polluted at one point. It was orange rinds. They were just processing the orange rinds, grinding them up and discharging them out there, and it created a lot of estuary problems. That stopped. I've watched the estuary return, both in Sarasota, estuary is doing very well. Tampa Bay has been, for me, the progress has been amazing. I mean, I recall driving on Bayshore, just a beautiful road you all should take if you don't, the longest contiguous sidewalk in the United States. Tampa plug. The, uh, so the idea was it used to be very smelly. I mean, it was bad. There was partially treated sewage being discharged. The bay itself had a huge nitrogen load. That's been cleaned up. So when I look around and I see that the recoveries are there, the springs are, many of them are getting much clearer. I've seen the lowering nitrogen levels in spring flows on the Hillsborough River over the last 20 years. So, yeah, I'm very encouraged. I think that it's working. And and now, Elizabeth, I'm going to bait you into, even though you seem like a really positive person, I'm going to bait you into the what keeps you up at night in terms of the Flores environment. Okay. I, I was afraid I was going to get this one. I I do a lot of work, so I think I, I exhaust myself pretty well during the day and get a decent night's sleep for that reason. If there is anything that keeps me up at night, it is just we've come a long way but there's still a long way to go, and there's a lot to do to get it there, so I just keep working at that. Very good. I'm going to give Doug another softball just to really rub it in, Elizabeth. <laughs> what advice would you give young people who are just entering or thinking about entering the environmental field, whether that's law or, or some other discipline? Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit here and agree with Elizabeth. The consistency is the staying the course. 
is the thing that keeps me up at night. How long will they continue to stay the course? How long will they keep the water management districts with a fixed budget and not being able to receive more money with the same rate over time to be able to fund what they've been doing? So anti-rollback message. So my issue is when I look at young people and the best advice I can give them is great advice I received. When I was four years out of my practice at a ABA seminar and they had some guy up there that was a practice leader and he said, if you do if you love what you do, you'll stink of it and people will be drawn to you. And it, it's the, the best advice I've ever seen. And people always ask me, how do you get clients? How do you, you know, you do the practice? The environmental field, the colleagues that I have in the field, even those that we litigate against, and usually end up litigating against them, you might be on the same side with them in another case a year from now, maybe sometimes at the same time. It's an amazing field to be in. And the colleagues and the experts, the learning all the time, enjoy it. Yeah, find joy in it. Find friendships in it. Have good relationships. All right, we have enough time. Elizabeth, do you have, a, you have advice for young folks getting into the field? I, I'm going to agree with Doug. And then I'm also going to say that I find my, my background in administrative law and background in business law are very helpful in the environmental field. And I don't know that I, I don't know if most people who are thinking about going into environmental law would expect that. So it's not, it's a much more diverse breadth of knowledge than you might expect to practice environmental law. So love it and love learning. Love all of it. Awesome. Elizabeth Fernandez, Doug Manson, thanks so much for being on the show. I Thank appreciate you, it. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. And thank you again to Rez for making this podcast possible. Please check them out at www. .res.us. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use and don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on LinkedIn and Instagram at flwaterpod and you can reach me directly at flwaterpod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sorn for making the best of what he had to work with and to David Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for this podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer.